Well, welcome back. I wasn't chased out with pitchforks last time, so that's good. Um, no, I'm excited to be able to talk to you guys again. This is a second part from last week. And if you were here, I, I ventured into the very simple topic of how can a good, loving God allow for evil in the world? And how could a good God create a world with such suffering and such hardship? And this one topic seems to be the vexing issue for people across the spectrum, whether atheist, agnostic, and even believer. I went through a crisis of faith when going through hardships and just not having a good answer. And just we all wrestle with God, why? Millions of people tonight around the world are facing tragedy, hardship. Maybe you're here tonight and you're facing a hardship and you're wondering why God. And we talked about this topic and also why and how so many believers, so many Christians are the least helpful people in the times of tragedy and hardship. And in response to your pain, many of them will say very encouraging things like, well, everything happens for a reason, or it's all part of God's plan, or God is in control. Or my favorite is when a friend of ours lost two young daughters. And someone tried to console her says, well, God works in mysterious ways. And they're not really trying to be mean. But Christians who say this, they're just uninformed. And it's a really common view. And most believers believe that God controls every detail on earth. That if it happens, it's because God ordained and designed it to happen. No matter what the affliction, no matter what the disease is, no matter what the issue is, that if it happened, it's because God decreed it from the foundations of the world. Now, I won't re-preach this message, but if you want to have the notes or even the audio, I'm happy to send it to you. But let me give you a couple of quick highlights of it. Is that we went through how God created creation good, but to have its own free will and its own free choice. Why? Is because that is what love requires. We looked at how evil first entered the universe, not through the sin of man, but through the fallenness of Satan, who was an angel who then rebelled and took a third of the angels with him. We looked at how then Satan stole the authority from man over all the earth. So much so that when Jesus refers to Satan, he calls Satan the ruler of the earth. And finally, we looked at how God is not in control like we believe. Because if God is controlling every detail of the earth, that means he's controlling your pain and the hardships and everything you're facing. If God controls everything, he's controlling that. And with a God like that, who even needs a devil? And instead, we learn that God is actually in charge and invites us to redeem and renew a world that is not as it should be. So that's where we left off last time. But if all of that is true, I, I like to leave messages on, on cliffhangers. If all that is true, we have some very big questions. If Satan is behind trials and tribulations, how do you survive them, and how do you become victorious over them? How does Satan effectively cause evil in the world and all around us? And can you do anything to protect yourself from the schemes and the tribulations that were caused by the enemy? And how do you live a life that is unafraid of the enemy? And can you actually live a life where the enemy is afraid of you? So I'm going to try to take care of all of those questions tonight. And my goal is to give you what I believe is the blueprint to be strong and victorious over life's hardest issues. And if I could have my way, I'll take each one of these things I'm giving tonight and talk for five hours of each one of them. 
but um, I'm going to give you guys the, the little nuggets and the key truths. But understand, this is woefully short of what it should be. But I want to help us have a framework and understanding that if God is not causing evil, how can we be, be victorious against the evil that comes against us? Are you guys ready? So in order to be victorious, you need, number one, you need to believe you have a real enemy. Now, this sounds simplistic, but let me tell you this, is it takes zero faith, zero faith to believe that God is causing your pain and your hardship. It's, in fact, the default position that most people believe, and it is essential. If you're going to be victorious over hardships and trials and tribulations, it's essential that you believe that Satan is real and he is the one that is responsible. And hopefully, if you heard last week, I was able to convince you of that last time, but I cannot tell you how important this is. Several years ago, there's a prominent research group called Barna Group, and they did a survey of Christians, and they found that 60%, more than half of all believers who profess Jesus as Lord, say that Satan is just a mere symbol or metaphor of evil. 60%. Now, I'm no rocket scientist which has no relevance about what I'm about to say now, but you cannot be victorious over an enemy that you don't believe exists. So if we really have a real enemy, we first need to believe that he is real and he has real authority. And this is why a majority of believers think that God ordains trials and suffering is because they actually don't believe there is a real force against them. If you don't believe there's an active and real force in this world that's against you, you naturally are going to put all responsibility on God. And last week I concluded with this statement is that the biggest scandal in all of the universe is that Satan is stealing, killing, and destroying, and has yet tricked so many of us into believing that it was God. We have a real enemy who causes real evil. Ephesians says this so vividly, says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers and against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Do we have a real adversary? You bet we do. Now, we don't want to be obsessive about the devil, but we can't ignore him either. You need to understand that Satan is real and that he has a plan. If you want to make Christians look really confused and uncomfortable, ask him, do you know what Satan's plan is? It just gets really awkward really fast. And Satan's plan is two parts. First, it is to steal, kill, and destroy. It's amazing how we get confused when Jesus is like, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But like, but God comes and steals and kills and destroys, right? No, he's like, he made this so simple for us. So that is the first part. The second part is to make you believe that God is to blame. The devil's plan is to cause and coordinate trials while making you believe they are from God. Why? Why is it so important that Satan tricks you into believing the trials and hardships are from God and not from Satan? Because when you believe trials are from God, you won't resist. Why would you? If you really believe that God is doing to this, why would you even pray against it? Taking medicine, praying against it would be an act of rebellion if you really believe this is what God is doing. And if you don't resist, then Satan can come and steal and will continue to take from you. 
And the easiest target Satan can find are the ones who don't realize it's actually Satan who's taking from them. And there's no greater reward that Satan has than for him to steal, kill, and destroy. And then for people to say, well, God works in mysterious ways. There's no greater reward for Satan than to orchestrate unimaginable pain and suffering than have you say, well, everything happens for a reason. There's no greater reward for Satan than to cause loss and devastation and have you say, well, God gives and takes away. And this is exactly the story of Job. A man who was attacked by Satan, but believed it was from God and never resisted the devil. Job is a book of the Bible about a man named Job. Now, I don't have a full night to ruin that book of the Bible for you like I really want to right now. Maybe for another time where I can send you another teaching I've done on it. But the book of Job, I'm convinced, is the most misunderstood Bible in the entire, most misunderstood book in the entire Bible. If you're not familiar with the story, the man in the Old Testament, Job was very prosperous. He's very rich. He had thousands of cattle, oxen, sheep, and livestock. And as the story goes, what you would believe is a story, what you might have been uh, taught as a child or maybe taught in your grown adult ages is that Satan then convinces God to remove divine protection and strip Job of everything he has. His cattle, his ox, oxen, his sheep, his all the different animals, his servants, his children, all of them gone and dead. And to make it worse, Job's entire body is covered head to toe with sores and boils. And you know what, God, what Job's response is? Well, God gives and takes away. And we write songs about that. I can't stand that. And that part of the song comes where I'm like, I just remain silent a little bit. Further from that, in the middle of his destruction, Job says, shall I accept good from God and not evil? Job even knows his destruction is evil and yet attributes it to God. Now, why is this? Why is that Job's belief? Very simple. He did not know a devil existed. As Job had all of his loss, he had no idea there was anything that existed that could take from him. And I don't have time again to go deep into this. But let me show you something. Is that in the Old Testament, Satan is mentioned 14 times. 14 times in the entire Old Testament. 11 of those times are in the book of Job. For comparison, in the New Testament, Satan or the devil is named 64 times. And Jesus steps foot on the earth and talks about Satan and the devil. And what he does is he reveals what's been going on the entire time of all of history. But the spiritual battle has been raging on ever since creation. And we only have 14 references in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus comes and says, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, there's no other Old Testament reference for Satan doing that besides the book of Job. So if you want to write in your Bible and you find that verse in John 10.10, 10, you should write the book of Job right next to it. And again, it's not that Satan suddenly became active when Jesus arrived. He's always been doing that. But what am I getting at? Is that Job suffered the most severe 
trials and tribulations of anybody else in the Bible. But he was completely unaware of who caused it. It's a tragedy. And we know this to be true because in all of the book of the book of Job, Satan is not mentioned a single time by Job, his wife, his friends, anybody. And we get to like the first few chapters, and it's like, okay, Job, you know, upright, righteous man, God's turning him over to the enemy. Well, that's kind of weird, but whatever. And we miss the next like 45 chapters. But what you don't realize is chapter 42. After Job is saying all these things and trying to justify what happened is God comes to Job and says, I am angry with you and your friends because you have not spoken the truth about me. We have let the book of Job form theology about what we believe about God, about trials. And God at the very end of the book is like, you had it all wrong. And so the book of Job is the textbook for what not to do when facing tribulation. It's a significant fact that Job suffered the greatest tribulation and hardship, but did not know it was Satan. So don't be like Job and be ignorant about the enemy. You guys with me? Look a little scared. You with me? All right. In order to be victorious, the second thing is don't allow yourself to become a target. 1 Peter 5.8 says, The enemy roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How do predators identify prey? How do criminals identify victims? They look for easy targets. People who are ignorant, wounded, vulnerable, and unwilling to put up a fight. And I believe we can become a target of the enemy in two ways. By the thoughts we believe and the footholds we allow. Let me elaborate. And here's what I find to be one of the most fascinating details of the book of Job. Again, things that people don't notice. In the middle of all of his livestock slaughtered, all of his servants dead, his children dead, his body covered in boils, facing destruction. You know what he says? Besides God and gives and takes away? He says, the very thing I have feared has come upon me. The very thing I feared has come upon me. Could it be that fear can give the enemy suggestions? Could it be that when we fear, we're giving the enemy ideas? Could it be that fear is this self-fulfilling prophecy where the fear actually attracts and invites the very thing we're afraid of into our life? I can't tell you how many times I've witnessed people witnessing, experiencing hardships and trials, and they said, and I was worried about this. I knew this was going to happen one day. Is it really true? I actually don't know, but I've seen it enough times. But what I do know is that our minds and our thoughts are very important. Proverbs 23, 7 says that so as he thinks within himself, he is. So our thoughts are important. But there are a couple interesting things that the Bible says about our minds if you are a believer in Jesus. The first is that 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that you have the mind of Christ. Seems like an unusual upgrade. You have the mind of Christ. Now let me ask you, does the mind of Christ suffer from fear? Does the mind of Christ have sinful or bad thoughts? But it says that we have the mind of Christ. We're like, well, I have all those things. 
But just because you have those thoughts in your head does not mean they belong to you. See, when we have a bad thought, when we have our, our mind is raging, we assign responsibility to ourselves. But we can't trust that every thought we have comes from us. How do I know is that 2 Corinthians says that we are to take captive every thought and make it obedience to Christ. The, ter- the, the imagery here is like arresting. Like I arrest you, you're a trespasser, and I make it obedient to Christ. So when bad thoughts come into your mind of Christ, you get to say, that's not my thought, that doesn't belong to my head, and I get to escort you out of my head, and I take no ownership or responsibility for that. But what we do as Christians is like, oh, this thought, I'm going to dwell this thought, I feel bad for having the thought. Now I feel bad for feeling bad for having that thought. And so we get in this loop and we work ourselves up, taking continual responsibility for the thoughts we have being tormented by them and never realizing the Bible says you have authority to escort them out because you have a renewed mind and you do not have to take responsibility for that thought of being yours. As the saying goes, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. And so that's how we need to approach our mind and our thoughts. So practically speaking, how can we avoid by how can we avoid by becoming a target is by stewarding our thoughts and our minds not allowing the enemy to make us dwell on fears and thoughts that actually don't belong to us. So the next time you have a thought that's tormenting, a thought that's terrifying, an anxious, insecure, fearful thought, a thought that says, I'm not good, I'm not beautiful, I'm not wonderful, I'm not loved. You then say, this thought does not come from Jesus, does not even come from me, and I get you out of my mind. That's what taking authority of your mind is. The second way we can make ourselves target is by giving the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4.27 says it quite literally. Do not give the devil a foothold. But what does that mean? It means it's possible to give him one. Now, I try to live a disciplined life. I try to live upright and avoid temptation, not because I'm afraid that something I'm going to do wrong and then God's going to send lightning bolts on me or disconnect the brakes of my car or something like that. Like, I want to live a righteous and moral and upstanding life, yes, to maybe please God. But you know what else? The greater motivator is to not give a foothold to the enemy. I choose my life and I build my life intentionally so that I'm not creating open doors into my life from the enemy. My decisions, what I permit to come into my life, what I intend what I entertain with my eyes and what I allow myself to experience and taste opens doors to an enemy who doesn't have good intentions. Eric Waterbury, who you might have met last week, he ended, usually ends our services. He and I will talk weekly, every Wednesday morning, and part of our conversation is an examination on each other's lives, asking each other hard questions to make sure there's no behaviors, choices, and compromise that provide access into our life to the thief. So practically, how do we not become targets is we take authority of our mind, but we also eliminate footholds in our life. And so I ask you to examine your life. If you're worried about footholds, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any doors or any footholds that exist in your life. Maybe for you, it could be a vice. Maybe it's substance or drink or others. Maybe it's your words. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's pride. Ask God to reveal it to you and then close those doors because the enemy is roaming around looking for a victim. 
and you have the power to open up access into your life. It's a feel-good message, isn't it? Number three, in order to be victorious, you need to understand how the enemy operates. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a large man in a rubber suit with a pitchfork and a pointy tail. We, we wrestle with that Satan is real. But very few of us can actually articulate. Well, how? What is he doing? And how do I know it's him? And where is he operating? Like, very few of us have the awareness and understanding for how all that works. And I've studied the Bible on this, and I found two key ways in which Satan operates. The first is through the mind, wills, and emotions of people, which, again, is why our minds are so important. And second, through geographic or location regions. Now, regarding people, when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, which is always just like a good time when reading the scriptures, when he just like tears in the Pharisees, you know, one of the biggest slams, the biggest roasts, he's like, you Pharisees, you, your father is the devil. And it is your will to do your father's will, who's the devil. Talk about an accusation. And Jesus is revealing something really important because remember, Jesus says, not my will, but your will. So the will of man has an option to choose the will of Satan or the will of God. So mankind wrestles with this, but Jesus is saying that there's a will of Satan and the Pharisees have been completely captivated and are doing the will of Satan in their own will. That's interesting. Second Timothy says this, and Paul's talking about people who are deceived, evil people, and he's trying to like encourage to pray for them. And he says this about these evil people. He says that may they come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Did you catch that? That Satan can captivate and ensnare people to do Satan's will. Crazy. And the most notorious example in the Bible is Judas, who betrayed Jesus, right? And probably the most haunting and scary four words in the entire Bible have to do with Judas, the night before Jesus is betrayed. These four words appear, and it appears twice. It says, and Satan entered him, Judas. And Satan entered him. Judas was a man who allowed his will to be overcome by Satan's will. There's so much more here I'd love to cover. But practically, we need to be aware of our minds, our wills, and emotions that can be influenced by the enemy, that Satan wants to. And this whole topic of its own is something I wish I could spend a greater time with, but it means that as we find people that are doing evil in the world, the people are not the enemy. It's what's going on inside of them that is. But they have been overcome, and now they are a proxy for the enemy on this earth. And so we need to see what's really going on. We need to pray not that their behavior stops, but that their minds will be renewed, that their, their wills will be cleansed, and we need to pray for what drives them because they have been ensnared to do the will of Satan. Now, regarding geography, this might be a newer one, is I don't fully understand this, but it's in the Bible, is that it seems to indicate that the enemy can wield different levels of power based on where the enemy is at and the regions. Does anybody remember the story of the demon-possessed man who says, 
I am legion, because there are many of us, terrifying, right? And so he's confronted with Jesus, and then there's a really odd request from the demons inside the man. Do not send us out of, anybody know? The region. The demonic forces in the man crying out to Jesus, not asking, don't destroy us. Let us stay where we are in this area, in this region. I mentioned this last week too, but Jesus could not do miracles in his hometown. What is it about that? There's something about geography, the land or the place that can have power for the enemy. Melissa Holland is here from Awake, and she is running a global ministry rescuing people from sex trafficking. You of all people would probably agree with, like, there are places that the enemy has exceptional power and authority over. There's a fascinating observation to look for when you read the miracles of Jesus. Is that when you see Jesus perform miracles, watch what he does. Sometimes he will change the location of the person in order to heal them. When Jesus had an entire crowd that was in Galilee, he brought them on the other side of the Jordan River and then healed them there. It's not like he's like, hey, I want to take a walk before I like, get my healing on. It's like there was something about where they were. The blind man, we all remember when Jesus spits in mud and like puts it in his face and eyes. I mean, you're like, wow, that was really dramatic, Jesus. Cool. What did he do before? He took him out of a village and then healed him outside of there. And then says, don't go back to the village. There's something about location. And there's lots of other examples like this. But practically, what do we do? I'm really not sure besides to be aware that there are places, there's cities or homes that the enemy has been given permission to have additional power. And we need to be aware of places of darkness. We need to be aware of the forces that come against not only my will and emotions, but everybody else's will and emotions. And that's magnified in those places. So, so far, those are the three truths. They're cautionary principles, a little bit of defense, if you will. Let's talk about offense. In order to be victorious, you need to know that you were designed for victory. Designed for victory. When you receive Jesus, it's not that you just go somewhere different when you die. It's that you become a new creation. The Greek word there is prototype. You become something totally other and totally different. Galatians then says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives through me. You now have been transformed into somebody who can live wildly differently. And in the faith, we totally overlook this incredible truth. We think it's all about heaven. But what the scriptures show us is there's so much of an emphasis about what is going on in us while we're living here on earth. Because when you receive Christ, you are utterly transformed. And that is completely unnecessary if the entire goal was to get to heaven. Not having our sins come back to us and paying for our sins would have been enough. Forgiveness would have been enough. Jesus, forgive me my sins, you're forgiven. That would have been awesome and perfectly sufficient. But he transformed us. And it's throughout the Bible. Why? It's because Jesus designed us for something else for while we live here. The transformation was totally unnecessary. Let me just give you a smattering here of some of the things of when you receive Jesus and become transformed. Look at this, that you've been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, of 
the kingdom of heaven, that you will do greater things than even Jesus, that you've been given the mind of Christ, that you can hear the voice of God, that you've been given power to overcome the enemy, that you've been made co-laborers with Christ, that you can bind and loosen things on earth and heaven, that you've been made a priest king, that you will crush Satan under your foot, that you will live as Jesus lived. I've got a lot more to go, so hold on. That you've been given power by the Holy Spirit, that you can ask and it will be given to you, that you've been given fullness in Christ. You can do all things through Christ. That you can have understanding in everything, that you've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, that you are the voice of God, that you are the ambassador of God, that you are the temple of his presence, that you are the righteousness of God, and that you have been given every spiritual blessing. That's just what I could find this afternoon or late last night. We think the Bible's about where we go after we die. If you want to be totally transformed by the Bible, read about what is happening to you now and what is transformed in you because of him. Why would God transform you in the here and now, give you spirit and desire to work through you if the entire goal was to get you somewhere else after you die? The answer is because you are made for victory here on earth. Victory over the enemy and victory over what he causes, including trials. Romans 8.37, it talks about trials, it talks about tribulations, it talks about all these different things. It gives us a big long list. And then says, in all of these things, in all the trials, in all the tribulations, we overwhelmingly conquer them through Christ. Who loves us. If you need a one more proof that Jesus is not sending you your trials and hardships, it's this, is that God cannot be your comforter and your co-conspirator in conquering you if he's also your afflictor. We don't run into the arms of our abuser for comfort, do we? In Christ, he's helping us overcome and conquer that which comes against you. Do you face a real enemy who comes against us? Absolutely, but are you equipped more than you ever thought humanly possibly could imagine, absolutely too. And the devil does not want you to learn about who you are in Christ. But when you do learn it, you are no longer afraid of the devil. He becomes afraid of you. You want to make the enemy scared of your life, learn about who you really are as a transformed person in Christ because you've got his number. You were designed to be victorious over him. Next, in order to be victorious, you need to, number five, fight back and resist. The goal is not to run and hide from the enemy. The goal is to fight back and resist when he comes to you. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does that tell you about the devil? That there's a measure of laziness with him. It tells you that he's actually not committed to picking on you if you make it a pain. He will leave you and go find an easier target. The best way to keep the devil away is always to fight back anytime he rears his head. And you fight back with your prayers, back with your praise, back with your faith. And last week, Thursday night before this service, again, I'm, I'm talking about trials and tribulations, right? It's like, I had the most, our family's had the most ridiculous 10 days of just everything coming against us. And you know that you're over the target when the enemy starts rearing up like he has. Thursday night, my mom has a heart attack and is on FaceTime with us, like, in case I don't wake up tomorrow. I'm like, great, well, I'm teaching about trials tomorrow. This is perfect timing. And the enemy comes and desires that to take you out. 
And my family like, Mom, all of our family, like, Satan hands off, Mom. Like yelling through FaceTime. <laughs> and just not today, <laughs> Satan. You know, and just punching and fighting back. And we declared for her. We rebuke and resist the best we know how. Sometimes we don't know how to tangibly do that, but you need to form a fist. When adversity comes at you, you don't just like, well, what, what is God teaching me? I don't know. Like, no, you stand up and say, God, you've equipped me for victory. And we need to know that God works in us to defeat the enemy. Romans 16, 20 says that soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your foot, your foot, that you are the mechanism in how God is going to eradicate darkness. And I'd su suggest to you that if you can't remember the last time you resisted and you rebuked that you are not a very big threat to the enemy, that ignoring Satan and hoping Satan leaves you alone is not a winning strategy. Now, going back to the book of Job, remember, the book of Job is the textbook for what not to do. Let me compare and contrast the life of Job. Remember who's had the most trials and suffering of any person in the Bible. Let me contrast his response, his reaction, with the life of Jesus. Job said God takes away, but Jesus said God gives life abundantly. Job blamed God, but Jesus blamed Satan. Job believed the lies, but Jesus rejected the lies. Job sat down in his ashes, but Jesus stood up and fought back. Job was paranoid and superstitious, but Jesus was unafraid and secure. Job justified himself, but Jesus humbled himself. Job accepted the storm, but Jesus rebuked the storm. Job tore his robe and questioned God, but Jesus girded his robe and cast out demons. If you want to get defeated by the devil, follow Job's example. If you want to be victorious over the enemy, follow Jesus' example. One of the best things that the life of Jesus did is it completely demolished the example that Job set for us for how to address trials and tribulations. James 4, 17 says this about our actions. It says, anyone who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. That's a challenge. Anyone who knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Why is that? Could it be that that thing that you feel you ought to do is actually God helping stamp out darkness and evil. And so to resist and to do nothing is to allow evil to continue on and to go unchallenged. It's the same thing as the famous quote that all that is needed for evil to triumph is for good men and women to what? Do nothing. The highest calling as a believer is not going to heaven. It's actually living a powerful life that stomps out darkness. How are you guys doing? I'll give you one more fast. Again, I just condensed like a 12-hour talk into 35 years. <laughs> Last one, in order to be victorious, you need to refuse to give the devil a reward. What do I mean by that? We are assured that every one of us will face trials and tribulations. Jesus promises this. Not in a good way. He's like, the world will give you trials. And remember, he's not saying, I'm going to give you trials and it's going to be beautiful. No, he's like, the world is going to give you trials. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Again, he is our 
collaborator in our trials. But here's the challenging part is that there's parts of the Bible that say something strange about trials. It says that we are to rejoice when we encounter trials. And a lot of Christians have taken this notion of rejoicing for trials and say, well, see, it's God. You know, we rejoice because it's God. Thank you, God may have another. Like, that we, we're trying to find a way to make this hardship joyful and so good, Jesus, for all this sickness that I'm experiencing right now. Thank you, I rejoice. Like, that is what people have twisted that idea to rejoice with. That's not the case at all. So why does the Bible say we should rejoice when we encounter trials? What's the benefit of that? We're not to rejoice about the trials because there's nothing to rejoice about with cancer, disease, death, hardship, any of those things. We are to rejoice as our response, which is a different idea altogether. Let me explain. When the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and we still have joy, we rob the enemy of a prize and reward. You follow me? What the enemy wants to do is he wants to bring hardship to you so you are downtrodden, depressed, and discouraged. The goal of trials is to steal your joy. We don't try to manufacture joy for something that's not joyful. We respond with joy because we replenish the very thing the enemy is trying to destroy. Joy is the second fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. Trials come to steal the fruit from our lives. And so when we respond with joy, not about the thing, but we just say, I'm going to rejoice because that robs the enemy of what he's trying to take from me. It's the best way to render trials ineffective is to not give them power to steal your joy. Let me say that again. The best way to render trials ineffective against you is to not give them power to steal your joy. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be sad. I'm just saying that the enemy wants you to be out of the game, neutralized, and to have tormenting thoughts. It's the best way to say, nope, I'm going to continue to have joy because that's the very thing that's trying to come against me. So to stand your trials and to pursue joy, that is the sweetest revenge you can have on an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. I want to have the band come up. And I know that was a lot. But I'm glad to be able to help, hopefully, in your mind, reconcile two ideas is that God is not sending trials and tribulations in your direction. And second, is that we actually can be victorious. The goal is not that we're going to live these perfect lives that have nothing ever go wrong. Like, we're going to have challenges and, and trials. But we don't have to choose defeat. We don't have to choose what Job did and tore his clothes and said, God, why? So let me summarize. If you want to be victorious, number one, you believe that you have a real enemy. Don't be Job who is ignorant of the enemy. You will not be victorious over an enemy that you do not believe exists. Number two is don't allow yourself to become a target. The enemy is roaming around looking for someone to devour. So guard your mind and your thoughts and eliminate any footholds in your life. Number three is understand how Satan operates. The enemy works through minds, wills, and emotions, both through you and people around you. And the enemy has greater influence in some locations. So beware. 
Number four is that you were designed for victory. Your highest calling as a believer is not to go to heaven. Your highest calling as a believer is to stomp out the darkness around you. And you've been equipped for victory. And just like Satan works through minds, wills, and emotions to cause evil, God works through your mind, will, and emotions to cause good. Number five is fight back and resist. Don't follow the model of Job who laid down. Follow the model of Jesus that formed a fist and fought back. God defeats the enemy through your action. It's going to come through your hands and feet, your nonprofits, your Bible studies, your love for somebody. Somebody come into mind and call them like, hey, you're on my mind. What are you doing? I just was about to make a bad decision. Well, God loves you and there's a better hope for you. And last is to refuse to give the devil a reward. Trials come to steal your joy. The enemy wants you down, discouraged, and depressed. And the best revenge when trials come is to not give the enemy any reward, not an inch. I'm going to mourn, I'm going to weep, but I'm not going to allow the enemy have victory over my joy. I seek my joy from the Lord as a fruit of this thing that is in me, so I'm going to choose joy. Awesome. I'm going to have Mike Phelps come up and close this, but if you are facing something tonight, I just would ask you to reflect on how amazing God is who wants to partner with you to help you overcome that which is against you. And so, Mike, thank you.